I think it's really important for helpers to love the work that they do. And I think that that's true because if we don't love the work that we do, we aren't going to be able to keep coming back to it in a way that is consistent and powerful and meaningful because it's so complex and it can be so emotionally draining. Um, and if it doesn't feel like it's the right fit for us, then it's it can just totally sink the ship. Um, so we need to feel connected. We need to feel that what we do is meaningful. And I think we need to love it. And a lot of the time, I think what ends up happening is we find something that we're good at, that we know how to do in the helping fields, and we just kind of like hang out there. And maybe we're there for longer than we want to be or we need to be because leaving or um, leveling up or moving into something that we're interested in, but maybe we don't know as much about is really scary. And you know, people don't like to wrestle with fear, especially when it has to do with their career and their money. So it can be a hard jump. example of someone who has been able to make jumps throughout her career in a way that almost appears seamless. Um, and it's, it's kind of like she navigates into new areas of practice effortlessly <laughs> um, and is tapped into something inside of her that sort of directs where she's going to go next, which makes her a really interesting interview because I think that her experience will speak to a lot of people that might be feeling um, fearful or paralyzed by the prospect of making that jump, even though they might want to. So I'm excited to bring you Alison Moradis. I think it's a really uh, important interview for those of us that are dealing with some amount of fear and who's not. <laughs> so here's Alison. So I have Allison Moradis with me today, and Allison um, agreed we're sort of in a mastermind group together um, as we work through having our own businesses, and Allison agreed to kind of share some of what, uh, what she's been working on. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't you just start kind of sharing a little bit about who you are as a helper um, and what kind of work you've done within the helping fields to date? Um, so I am a social worker. So I've been in the field of social worker for 25 years, which sounds really scary when I say that out loud. <laughs> um, I started um, as a BSW. I worked um, in the field of corrections and then um, got burnt out, compassion fatigued, uh, tired and moved into my journey. My next phase, which was um, combination private practice and uh, post-secondary teaching. Mm -hmm. So that's been the bulk of my career um, through those years. And I've been in private practice for just over around 10 years. 
Um, so that's what I'm doing now. And I've got a small group practice um, in a place called Brantford, Ontario, which is just outside of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Okay, nice. And so you've got a group practice. And then in addition, you were also working on building some more things beyond that even. That's sort yes. of, yeah. Branching so about a year ago, I started looking into what I thought was um, going to be a way to um, work with the clients I loved working with, which is um, women who are at midlife, who are struggling with um, changing their role from mothering uh, to needing to find purpose for themselves. So I online program, whether that was a course or a membership or something supportive. So um, that's kind of where I connected um, with Marissa Lawton from uh, side, hustles, side Hustles for Psychotherapists. And then as I got investigating what that was all about, and I mean, I went into that really not knowing a whole heck of a lot about online work as a therapist, what that meant, how you did it, how you did it well, how you do it ethically, nothing. I knew nothing, but I knew I wanted to extend my reach and I knew I felt I, I would be good at it, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. that looked like. Um, and then as I worked through what I wanted to do with Marissa and my group, I kind of morphed into um, changing my focus from a client-focused program to something that was therapist focused. And Mm. one of the reasons that happened is because I did decide to leave the post-secondary teaching um, earlier and um, that year. And I was already missing the content creation, the mentoring, the supporting, the lecturing, all of that stuff. So I wanted to work with my colleagues to help them on their journey toward private practice, partially too, because I was enjoying and have enjoyed private practice so much, but I did the regret, only regret I've had is that I didn't do it earlier. And I <laughs> was really... That's mine too. <laughs> yeah. Like I, why did I... And it was all about risk and it was about um, being afraid of all the, what I called the golden handcuffs of the job I had. It was a government ministry job. So I had benefits and good salary and lots of vacation and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I, everybody in my world was saying, well, don't do that. Right. Why would you give that up? Are you crazy to go into <laughs> business? Like that's nuts. Right. But I knew in my heart. I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. Like the thought of doing that for another however many years was just (laughs) like, (laughs) I, I, I knew I couldn't do it and I knew I needed to do something differently. And honestly, when I started my social work journey way back as an undergraduate, I knew I wanted to be in private practice, but the timing never seemed right for it. Right. And that was something as I was learning about doing an online program, um, that is something that started to resonate with me that I want to help other people realize that this doesn't have to be this way. Yes, I know. Okay. So this, all of this is so important. There's so much juicy stuff here. So I want to, um, before we kind of dive into those things, cause I think what you just described is, is so much of why I think it's important to have you on and to kind of talk Good. about the things you you've went through. Um, but just to give a sense, um, for people listening, just a little bit about kind of who you are personally. Um, outside sure. of your therapist helper role, who are you just as a human? We know you're okay. Canadian, so that's I'm a cool. Canadian. <laughs> uh, yes, I am. Um, 
I mean, I don't mean to say my identity is defined as a mom, but I am a mom of three kids. I have three boys, um, one who is 19, one who just turned 16, and one who is 12. Mm-hmm. And I have a husband, so I live in a house full of men. Even my dog is male. <laughs> and I have a female cat who wants nothing to do with me. So <laughs> I think a lot of who I've become over the last 20 years has been defined by learning how to navigate what I call boy world. Um, and just, I was, I've always been um, interested in sports and loud music and mm-hmm. all the things that my boys love. I have very typical sporty boys. They all have played hockey, um, Canadian, or just play, play right into the stereotypes. Um, and so that's really what's occupied the last 20 years of my life. And thankfully, private practice really lent itself to that because once I got into private practice, it helped me in my mothering role because I was able to work my schedule around my dudes. So that's always been important to me. But as far as my stuff, who I am, I've, um, I'm an introvert. Um, I enjoy re-energizing solitary with solitary pursuits for the most part. Well, not for the most part. I'm, I'm kind of a I don't know. I'm a bit of both, but I think I do after a long day of therapy, I very much need to be on my own. So things like reading are really important to me. I'm very fitness oriented. I love doing my workouts. I love putting a podcast on and going for a walk or a run. Um, I love music. So some days it's not a podcast, it's music. And I have playlists that define um, the moods that I am in and help me. I think it helps me be a better therapist because I've learned over the years to know my limits and music helps me kind of decompress. And I love going to concerts. So that's another piece of music for me. I wish I was a musician. I keep threatening to learn an instrument, but again, <laughs> the timing has not been right. But again, I learned that you need to make the timing right. So that was kind of a pandemic thing. I kept saying I need to get going on. Um, yeah, so that's kind of who I am um, as a person. Quiet for the most part after spending a day with clients. Mm-hmm. Yes, I relate to that. I could see you deciding to jump into a musical pursuit and having that work out based on all the <laughs> things that you've done. So maybe that's in your future yet. But yes, um, I hope so. It could be. So one of the things, when we started kind of talking about um, the podcast and everything, you described yourself as an accidental social worker, which I just loved how that sounded. Can you just say a little bit about that? (laughs) You're an accidental social worker. It's kind of funny because I entered the field of social work. uh, Well, I like a lot of people started my undergrad and wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do. Like I hated maths and sciences and all that kind of stuff. So I got into social sciences and gravitated towards sociology because I liked learning about sociology and, um, you know, humans in their environment. Um, And then as a teenager, so that was kind of in the back of my mind, but I didn't know a lot about what I needed to do. So then I I switched gears when I was almost done the sociology degree. and applied for my BSW. So I went and did BSW after the sociology 
the workforce. I kind of say that was accidental because it was intentional, but accidental. It, It took me, you know, an extra year to figure that out. Right. Okay. Then... Um, I started working in corrections and that was initially a summer job as a probation and parole officer. And again, like I knew somebody in the office and they said, Hey, we have a summer student uh, position. Do you want to try it? Apply. I got it. So I did two summers there and then I was finishing my degrees. And then the manager called and said, Hey, we have a mat leave. Do you want to fill the spot? I'm like, well, I guess so. Um, I'll do that for a year. Um, and we'll move on. And then 15 years later, I was still there. So yeah, that's kind of what got me, again, accidentally into a 15-year career. Mm-hmm. Um, that I don't mean to sound like it was terrible, because it wasn't. I learned so much from that job. And in fact, I think that's what's made private practice, I'll never say it's easy, easier, because I worked with resistance. I worked with mandated clients. I worked with unmotivated people. I worked with... Sure all the gambit of the really tough stuff that a lot of people shy away from right? therapy. Um, so I worked with that early on in my career and got my feet wet with some tough stuff. Mm-hmm. So I did that and then was getting tired. Um, I was on a mat leave with my third um, and um, finished my master's. And this paper got delivered to my mom's place where I was visiting um, which is close to my house, but I went out and picked it up and went, wait a second, there's the at a local college. I've always wanted to kind of maybe do something like that. So I applied and got it. So again, it, it felt like literally fell out of the sky, took that wow. job. Yeah. So that was interesting. So I was able to compliment, like I was in a transition phase with the corrections job, knowing I was going to leave it, but I was still terrified to do the private practice thing Yeah, and then jumped into that. So that was something I did complementary to joining my private practice, which again, kind of appealed to my um, conservative nature in that I was able to have the part-time gig at the college and then slowly weave my way into private practice and not take a huge risk that would make me lose sleep at night. So it all ended up working right. well. But again, I feel like it was somewhat accidental because I, I don't think it's accidental because Um, And I've very much been guided by that. So that kind of fit with that theory. Many, most people probably that are in our line of work kind of relate to this notion of that, you know, maybe wanting to reach for something, maybe like working for themselves. Um, Certainly within the sphere of, of therapy, private practice is always something that people are kind of thinking about or whatever. I know for me, um, going into private practice was just something I assumed that I could do when I was like 60 <laughs> and had done all of the service that I could in all of the other arenas for my entire working life, you know, and that fear element there that like we just, you know, there's so much risk, like you said, um, we, we don't get benefits then or, you know, what if I get no clients or what if, you know, what's going to happen? All those questions about it, I think, can be so paralyzing. Um, Big time. So what I think is really interesting about what you share is it's like you, you experience that fear just like so many people. And then once you sort of started moving towards the things that you felt like you wanted to do and just kind of moving through the fear a little bit, it's like you just kept hitting on trying 
you know, finding the things that fit for you. So, you know, trying to meet your needs in all these different ways, including your practice or like teaching or, or trying something new. So it sounds like you've really um, been able to sort of move from that space of fear to kind of a place of I'm going to sort of intentionally seek out and get what I want. Yeah. And um, that's kind of where I'm at now with the program with uh, it's called the practice companion. Mm -hmm. Um, Never when I started private practice, would I have thought, Oh, I will be teaching people how to do private practice, like (laughs) clinical supervision. Sure. Um, You know, teaching a modality. Sure. But I never thought the business part was my strength. Cause remember, if we go back to the beginning, I always hated math, which I still right. hate math, but right. I never liked those, um, detail oriented pieces of life. And I still struggle mm-hmm. with adulting and that kind of stuff. Um, but I gravitated to this because a lot of stuff fell into place for me, um, because of my, nature to sit back and go, I'm not sure. Oh, but I have to do it. And then I would do it and figure out, okay, it wasn't that hard. Um, If I can do it, anybody can do it type of theory. And that's kind of where my program has come from of like, honestly Mm. saying to people, if I can do this, people, you can do this. Um, I'm not a business mind. I'm not a, um, you know, analytical person. um, But I do know I don't like taking risks and I want to support you in not taking a risk in starting your practice. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, oh, that's so great. That's so, it's so important. It's so important for people. I because think like you, we've just both two people sitting here saying that's what scared the ha- the crap out of us is like right. risk. Mm-hmm. And again, if we want to analyze it, vulnerability, failure, um, you know, a lot of therapists are high achieving people. A lot of therapists are very much hold themselves to a very high standard. Don't like to put themselves out there um, and be vulnerable. And that certainly, I think, what holds a lot of folks back in agency jobs or work, um, but not exactly where they want to be. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people would probably describe where they are in their work lives that way. Right. Right. You know, doing something that feels somewhat helpful, but not quite the thing or not quite making enough to make ends meet or not, you know, not being able to take care of themselves, like having pieces missing. And Um, depleted. I mean, I think that's another thing is that the work we do when it's not done in the right context for us is so depleting because it's depleting on a good day. (laughs) <laughs> yes. No, that's right. So yeah. When you're doing it in a context that doesn't feel right, mm-hmm. um, that pushes you from a point of view of, you know, policies that don't fit with you or the way clients are treated or handled or staff. Mm-hmm. It's so depleting, so exhausting. Right. But so therapists, social workers, psychologists, any mental health professionals work and slug it away for a whole career. Mm-hmm. Like you said, go, oh, well, I'll do that when I retire. Right. And I mean, it begs the question, why? Right. Well, why do you, so that's a good question. Why do you think people, why do you think we do do that? Why do you think we box ourselves into this space of we're going to put off what seems, you know, easier or the, the higher things that we would aspire to and just continue to slog along? Right. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure because I think some of it comes from wanting to be 
like you said earlier, like help all the people do yeah. all the things. Um, yeah. Some, I mean, certainly in the field of social work, man, we in, my, in the years when I went to social to social work school um, back in the uh, I don't know early nineties, mid nineties, mid nineties. It was no early. Ugh. Um, it was about activism. It was about advocacy. It was about helping marginalized folks and making things better. Mm -hmm. So, and I mean, I, I had a discussion with um, a student of mine about this. Like when I went to school, the thought of going into private practice right out of your master's was like, you don't do that. You haven't right. earned your right. spot. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And that to me was part of it. And I think a lot of people still operate under that. Like I need to learn this or that, or this type work with this type of client or that, um, before I can actually go and do private practice. Mm -hmm. And the other piece of it is I, I believe this is a complete myth is, um, we've all experienced it, but we need to counter it is the loneliness of private practice. And many people mm -hmm. are insecure in that. Like they've worked in agency and had, almost restrictive policies per, to private practice and setting all that stuff up for yourself and almost flapping in the wind and being vulnerable and saying, Oh my gosh, have I followed all the, the laws, the ethics, the rules? Right. Right. That's a lot. <laughs> when it gets sued. Take. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And right. it's almost like, do you earn that wisdom? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wisdom after you've had a full career in, other areas of our field. Sure. And I, I think the answer is no. I think too, because um, I'm also, I was also, I did sociology and psychology together undergrad. So sociology like you, and then also a social worker like you mm -hmm. um, in, in my master's program. Um, and so I, I think very much there is social workers in particular. <laughs> I think we are very, very good at, meeting the needs and serving the people that we serve with a fervor and with passion. And we want people to have their, their needs met and we want people to, to be done right by, right? Like that's, a, uh, you know, and we're great at pursuing that at all costs for the people with whom we work. But then there's like this weird hole where, or this blind spot where like agencies or, um, we as individuals, like in school, it's, it's said to us, like, don't expect to make any money doing this. Don't expect to be able to take care of yourself. Like you're probably going to be exhausted all the time. You're probably, you know, you're going to need therapy because you're going to be an emotional mess. Like all these expectations right. to just set it up to be like, there is no way you're going to be well or you're going to flourish. We want our clients to flourish and we want the people we serve to flourish. But there's this weird lack of expectation for ourselves. And I think it's set up for us right at the beginning of our education and just kind right. of permeates um, and prevents us maybe from reaching up to the next level or even thinking about what's next, you know, for ourselves. Interesting. Interesting point too. Um, that idea of selflessness. Mm -hmm. um, I think the narrative when I was in school too was that private practice is like, ugh, like, yeah. yeah. Why would you do that? Right. Like that's elitist. <laughs> it's, you know, right. two tiered. Yeah. And to me, I've been trying to do some work around that. Not, mm. um, I, not as much in my practice, 
practice because I firmly believe there is a, a, a strong place for private practice. Um, and remember, where I come from, too, we have universal health care. So that impacts private practice in Canada as well, Wait a bit. more so yeah. than what happens in the U.S. I mean, we're not covered. I want to make that perfectly clear. Um, yeah, in Canada, therapy is not covered under our universal health care. Okay. Um, but it impacts the work we do because many people will go to their physician first because it's free. Mm-hmm. And then come to us later on or an agency or whatever. Mm. So that kind of piece of that layering of being in private practice and asking for money right. Um, right. is such a weird place to be in. And I've struggled in terms of marketing and being out there with my practice companion program. I've been very um, afraid of the haters and the people who are yeah. going to say, how dare you? Like, why are you teaching people how to do this? They're doing perfectly good work in agencies or, you know, private practice is a part-time job. It should be just a bit of a hobby at the end of your workday or on your Saturday morning. I don't believe that. Right. Sure. Well, and, and if people, if, if individuals are feeling happy and thriving and fulfilled and able to pay off their $100,000 school loans doing that, fantastic. Like why pull them away? That's great. That's wonderful. But I think the problem there is that just a lot of people, a lot of us have not been happy or have burnt out of the field in, you know, our thirties and forties. And and so something's not working. I think it's such an important conversation. I'm so excited you're exploring that within the context of, because it's not just private practice building, right? It's all these weird elements that go along with why is this hard to do outside of the bookkeeping and the, you know, it's, it's juggling a lot of balls. (laughs) Imposter syndrome inside the head voice of saying, is this what I should be doing? Is this the right way to reach people? Um, And everybody has to make that their decision on their own with that. But for me, it was really important to me once I did the work um, with Marissa around understanding that I had that gift to pass on to people mm-hmm. again, accidentally, because that's not why I went to see her or uh, went into the program. Um, Cause I was always so client focused. That didn't occur to me until I realized that I could actually expand my reach even further. If I'm helping individuals who want private practice in their life, then that just exponentially helps clients. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It just helps all the, all the way down. Absolutely. Right. So thinking about, you brought up kind of the fear and the vulnerability um, elements, right? And so there's like the if we're, we're talking about, uh, there's people, you know, listening, um, say that are interested in this notion, maybe toying with the idea of private practice or thinking about what they might want to create for themselves. Um, but having that experience of fear or not sure how to take the steps to move into what might be right for them because of that. Um, what's the secret? Like how, <laughs> how do, how do they get to that place of taking that small risk or large risk, whatever the case is? Ah, that's a hard question um, because, and I, I, I mean, for me, and this is what I'm trying to teach folks as well, that it, it doesn't have to be a big risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, I use the metaphor of dipping your toe in the private practice pool mm-hmm. um, because that's what worked for me. Mm-hmm. I took a leave 
from my job. So I gradually went from full-time to part-time to taking a leave that I didn't have to actually quit. Um, And then, and to me, that safety net is what enabled me to move forward with confidence Mm -hmm. Um, from a financial and secure that golden handcuffs point of view. I know not everyone will have that opportunity, but is it about maybe contrary to what we think we were taught in school, you do start it earlier when you have less to lose. You know, you don't have three kids and a mortgage and aging parents and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I mean, I would certainly say with um, new grads, I do think there is some value for getting experience in agency work. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Sure. Um, right. Because that's what makes you a good private practice therapist is you've seen lots of stuff in other environments. Um, but I think having the wisdom to step away from that before you're burnt out and compassion fatigued and then have energy to give to different clients in private practice is the secret is the key. Um, so not stepping in too early that, cause I, I've worked with people, I do clinical supervision. Um, I, and I know when I supervised students who are doing placements, um, that fear um, there has to be that balance between, you know, as Brene would say, leaning into it, leaning into the vulnerability, or knowing that you're not there yet. And maybe that case is too complex. Um, and I think certainly in private mm-hmm. practice, there be that money dynamic goes into it. Well, I better take these cases because I need to pay the bills. Sure. It's not a clinically sound reason to take the cases. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you've worked in agency work and you've seen lots of things and specialized in an area that you want to keep going at and feel confident in your work, private practice does become easier because you've got that under your belt, that confidence is built in. Right. It's just about learning that it was a good way to start in the field as maybe doing it part-time and knowing that the confidence comes. Right. Yep. Right. So share a little bit more kind of as you're building this side hustle now, right, where this is, you might have people coming to you that are wanting to figure out how to maybe slowly, it sounds like with, I love that, like, it doesn't have to be a big risk. It can be yeah, there's no cannonball in the pool, right? right? <laughs> Some people may sit on the side and go right in. Other people may cannonball. But I, my belief, regardless of how you get in, mm-hmm. is you need a plan. Right. And so this, this is the place. So what would they expect kind of going through the program that you're creating? What would that look like? You know, how, how would you support them? Right. Um, So really, I do at the beginning want to help people know their why, right? Because I it it lays the foundation upon which the practice is built. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether it's, you know, understanding, of course, we all have to pay the bills, but why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Um, If it's just simply to run away from an agency job that's burning you out, that's not good enough. What is it that's going to drive you on those days when you're freaked out that you don't have clients coming or that you're too busy and you don't know how to manage that? Um, How do you know what clients you're passionate about working with? And I mean, that's something when I do coaching with therapists in terms of setting up their practice, I know right away when I hear that passion, I see that passion in their voice, yeah. in their face, when they can talk about a client group. Um, that's kind of where I start with. And then talking about the nuts and bolts. Um, and I always say that that's actually the easy part of like making sure you've got your license up to date and paid up, your insurance, 
um, a software EHR platform, all of those kind of things. I mean, that's a simply a phone call and not a huge expense. It is an expense, but I always say too, we can start this practice relatively inexpensively because we do not have a lot of needs, Kleenex. Um, and you know, we need our, we have our degrees, we've done the hard stuff. So I talk about that setup stuff and then looking at learning how to structure stuff. And then the money mindset stuff comes next Mm. because many people, I certainly look on Facebook groups to help inform what I'm putting together. And many people say, Oh my gosh, how do I deal with this client? That's not paying. Mm. Right. I know. Yeah. Yeah. You see that all the time. And it's almost like deer in the headlights with a lot of therapists. I mean, my joke, and it's not a joke, it's actually true. When I started my practice, like I would forget to ask people to pay me. <laughs> Allison. Right? And like, what's happening? Like they would literally, you know, we the, do the doorknob conversation. I'd be like, okay, bye. And they're like, oh, where can I pay you? Um, because I love what I was doing so much. And I worked in agency for so long, I never entered the equation. Yeah, right. Um, um, and luckily no one ever didn't pay me. Um, worst case scenario is they like called me later and say, Hey, I forgot to pay you. Um, <laughs> but to me, that was a, a, is a big piece. Like so many therapists struggle with the money mindset stuff and, yeah. and knowing, and again, validating that it's okay to be a business owner and a therapist. That's right. Um, and right. it has to be that way. Yeah. Um, because I do think a lot of therapists of the old school ilk shy away from the whole business side of it. Okay, so let me set this scene for you. I was 35 years old, working at a residential program 50 plus hours a week, making less than $50,000 a year on public service loan forgiveness with nine years to go, two graduate degrees to pay for that totaled $101,000. I watched my interest accrue as I made minimum payments until my balance hit $121,000. I felt terrified, anxious, unwell, and I was sure that I couldn't stick it out to have my loans forgiven without having a mental breakdown. Do you relate to this story at all? Then I have a program for you. So I have a four week group intensive program rolling out in January, 2021 that will identify your stuck points and create an individualized plan for you to get out of student debt so you can be financially free. You'll work with me and a small group of like-minded individuals to follow the process that I did to pay off all my debts in a few years while increasing my income and cultivating a more satisfying career and lifestyle. Do you wanna learn more? Visit my website at danabelletier.com and check out the Help Yourself Group Intensive. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Do you like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love Car Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Don. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great, or maybe not great. <laughs> Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products. I've really started to pursue, to put into the program, again, accidental is the whole um, extending your reach through social media. Mm. Um, I've had, you know, an Instagram account for my practice and just, you know, posting nice messages. 
inspirational stuff. But I've started to learn um, more through I hired someone to support me with my social media presence to help me define my identity for both my practice and the practice companion, and how I was going to let people know I'm out there. Um, And I've learned more that it's not again, for me, that was a dirty word as well, like therapist, social media, that's terrible. That's well, sure. Ethics. I mean, happen. (laughs) You go to an ethics training and they scare the crap out of you. Right. (laughs) You can't be anywhere. You can't be found anywhere. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Like you don't exist. And then at my, right. my aunt, like is, and I was very lucky because when I set my practice up, I'm in the place where I was born and raised after I came back from university. So people know me um, indirectly um, and I've built a reputation. So I never really had to be on social media to market my practice because I was able to just like leverage, you know, agency connections and those kind of things, physicians. Um, right. And it worked out. But then I look at, in my program, working with someone who doesn't have that, which most people don't, um, how the hell else are people going to find you? Right, right, that's um, right. And yeah. the demographic is switching. Well, that's how people find stuff. Mm-hmm. And I really do resent those ethics trainings that say you don't do that. Like, well, you don't do stuff you wouldn't do face-to-face with the client mm-hmm. um, that's unethical, but you mm-hmm. can certainly have a presence online. Right. You no. can talk about what you do, who you are, how you share. Um, why? I, my biggest thing is how does a client know you're their person? Right. Oh my God. And it's so, it's essential, right? It's the single most important thing in finding a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. It's like this notion that any therapist will do. And it's like, well, right. no, <laughs> that's, that's not at all true. <laughs> I mean, even thank God, even if it's 15 whole seconds, psychology today has added that video feature because right. to hear people speak and watch their body language and smiles. And I mean, and that's the other piece in my program, like talking to therapists about how do you represent yourself? Because I'll be the first to tell you clients don't really give a care that you do CBT, EMA, EMDR, DBT, all the letters. And they say, I don't know what that means. That makes me kind of scared and intimidated. Mm. They want to know that you're pretty cool and you can laugh and you have troubles too. And you've learned uh, through your life experiences to do what you do. So that to me is another big piece of what I've t- learned accidentally to teach other mm-hmm. therapists that this you can be present ethically yes. and responsibly on social media and you need to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Tabula rasa, no more. Yes. <laughs> We're humans. Yeah. Who are these people? <laughs> when Real did people. the therapists drop down from heaven? I, I don't know. know. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of just being a human (laughs) for yourself, how do you do balance or like prioritizing your own wants and needs? Do you feel like you have a pretty good handle on that or, or how does that work for you? It's a, it's a minute by minute thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, some days are better than others. Um, I've certainly found during the pandemic, cause I am working completely online from home now. I have noticed I really enjoy working from home. Again, that's the introvert nature. Um, but it is harder to separate um, my yes. office space from my home life. Right. Um, it is. It's a tough piece. Um, and I mean, I really think raising kids and being in private practice 
helped me learn how to carve out time for myself and my things. Probably I should have done more of it or I could have done more of my own thing, but I've certainly learned to prioritize stuff that I know I need to have to be good at what I do, whether it's in my personal life and my professional life. And I mean, certainly exercises is a huge thing. I struggled so much during the lockdown part of the pandemic where I couldn't go to my gym and do my things um, because you really realize that that's what, that that cemented the idea for me that that's my lifeblood to get through the day. I go in the morning and get her done. Um, So there's things like that where I really have tried to cultivate that self-awareness, but I, as a therapist in the practice companion, as a, a, whatever I'm calling myself, consultant coach, um, I'm very transparent in saying I do not have it all figured out and nor Mm -hmm. do I expect ever to have it all figured out. I think it's always a work in progress. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. So you have someone who, you know, maybe been in the, in the field for a little bit, ready to kind of explore this notion of going into say a private, you know, going into private practice or starting to build something of their own, experiencing some of that fear and and vulnerability. So what would be the single biggest piece of advice that you would have for someone who is wanting to start something on their own and isn't sure where to begin or how to deal with that? What would you say? Invest in yourself. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing I have learned from um, therapists is that they very much struggle with investing in the coaching and consulting to get their practice off the ground. I think there is yeah. very much a misconception that you rent a space or you just go online and turn that computer on and start working with clients um, and have your Kleenex box if you're in person. And if not, mm-hmm. you just go. Um, and there's a fear that I'll figure a fear of yourself, um, to get the practice up and running. Um, and I mean, when I started practice, my practice that, you know, all of the programs that are out there now, which are fantastic, weren't out there. So it was about, you know, going to my governing body and looking for resources that were really stiff and starchy and not, you know, conducive to really giving answers about right stuff you know was always the code of ethics answers about collecting money and those kind of things i think people need to know and not just anecdotally on a facebook group or a listserv to know what you need to do to get that practice in place because that builds confidence and you get your return on your investment if you've created a solid foundation for your practice mm-hmm. You get that money back with clients who know that when they call you, the, the calls get returned because that's the thing I've learned that a lot of people are shying away from therapists who don't return their calls because they're, you know, they don't have sound administrative practices um, that you present as a professional organized therapist. Um, so people do see you as such. Right. We demand respect in the mental health community as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the word starts to get out that you know what you're talking about. And then that investment in yourself is paid off before you know it. Um, don't be lonely. That's the message I would tell a new therapist. This thing about, oh, private practice is so lonely. 
Mm-hmm. Only if you let it be lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Competition right. mindset for a lot of new therapists and even people who've been in private practice for a long time. Well, I'm not going to reach out to that person three blocks away because we're in competition. Mm-mm. Really? No, I mean, no two people are the same, right? Even no ma- even if you do the exact, almost exactly the same thing, you're going to get something totally different. Like I say, not everybody is client. Um, it, and that's nothing personal. And I mean, right. we tell our clients to do their due diligence, do their research, figure out a good fit. We right. need to reach out to our colleagues and work together. I mean, there's Wendy's and McDonald's. Right. <laughs> But I really, it drives me crazy that therapists have this idea that they're in this four walls of an office and they don't want to reach out to a colleague. Um, And to me, that's something that's a big piece of my program too, is like, honestly, I've been in the business a while. I will have people who say, oh, my sister needs therapy on this issue. And I'm well, I can't do that. It's a conflict or that's not my specialty, whatever. I struggle to find somebody to send them to. Right. Yeah. Unless I do the groundwork to reach out to people and say, Hey, this is out of my wheelhouse, but I see on your psychology today profile, you do this. Do you want to have a coffee chat and talk about how we can. Right. I find that that's such a light bulb moment for people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're asking our clients to be open and vulnerable and connect, but a lot of therapists aren't willing to do that where their business is concerned. Right. Yeah. That's so true. That's so true. And that's the loneliness piece. I mean, yeah. creating connections so you're not at the end of the day freaking out because you don't have someone to call to ask a question to or just say, wow, that was a sucky day. Um, right. Have you had one of those lately? Because <laughs> our, our, our loved ones don't get it to the same right. level. And you can certainly connect and not give out any client information. But all you have to do is say that to another therapist and they go, well, yeah. <laughs> Tell me what happened. Right. Tell me what happened. Yeah. Tell me how you're feeling. Oh, so this is, this is so good. So I'm saying you're going to do so many important things for so many people. So oh, is, thank you. This is awesome. I'm so excited about kind of what you're offering. So, so if people listening want to find you, want to find out more about your program, want to follow you on your Instagram, all those things, where can, where can people find you? So it's the practice companion. So my website's thepracticecompanion.com, um, Instagram, uh, and Facebook. I have a Facebook group, um, The Practice Companion, so you can Great. find me um, and connect. Yeah, and I'm, I'm basically planning on launching this, um, the, what I call the big program. I launched a smaller version of it in response to COVID because I was prepared to launch this in March. Um, and we all know what happened. So I created two weeks to private practice, which was a quick, um, program to help people get up and running really in response to the pandemic and hope that people who were laid off or wanting to do private practice would realize that it, you could put the stuff in place ethically and responsibly and get going. Mm. So I have changed the format for the big program, which is called the plan practice to be very um, responsive to each person in the program. So I'm giving out information for the first two months. That's the course piece, which is still supported by me um, and the fellow group members through collaboration and conversation about the concepts and how they're applied And then the third month of the program, my goal is to have people launching after the two uh, months 
And then mm. the third month is I'm supporting them as that practice is actually live. So they can have that meltdown and say, I've been live for two weeks and nobody's calling, or I have so many people, I don't know what to do, or how do I do this that that I haven't paid the inappropriate client, the problem solving that you think is never going to happen in private practice that actually does. Right. Don't believe it till it happens. Right. So that's my plan is to provide very uh, curated content with very customized support through that first month of practice and really beyond. Mm-hmm. Great. Awesome. Yeah. I hope it, you know, people that are looking to get started on this, reach out, take a look at what uh, Allison is doing. Yeah. And you. yeah, thank you so much for, for taking the time out to do this with me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. It's always fun to talk about it. And it's always fun to talk about our, our journeys in this field because everybody it, it, has a different path <laughs> as you have learned. <laughs> it's true. So true. Um, Okay, so I'm going to stop us there. Okay, finish up there. That's our show. For more from Allison, you can go to thepracticecompanion.com, the Facebook group of the same name, and Instagram, The Practice Companion. For more from me, you can go to danabellateer.com, where you can learn more about the Help Yourself group intensive that I'll be launching this January. Rocco Misco does the music. Thank you so much, Rocco. And Liam O'Donnell does a beautiful job of editing and producing this show. We'll see you next week.